When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can listen to new episodes every Thursday. And if you're already subscribed, why not also leave us a rating and review? Today we're in Kent in southeast England, about halfway between the towns of Rochester and Maidstone, to visit an ancient sacred site with a fascinating story. Charles, hi. Hi, Charles. I've just met properties historians Dr Jennifer Wexler and Dr Alistair Oswald on a grassy hillside not far from the village of Aylesford. Welcome to Kit's Coty House. Thank you. I've just emerged from this sort of path which is covered with trees and fallen leaves. It sort of sets you up for sort of a bit of a time travelling adventure to sort of emerge from that time tunnel, so to speak, and on this ridge next to this ancient monument it's amazing you're a bit shocked i mean you just don't expect to see things like this on the east side of england do you it's an amazing thing to look at and i suppose the first thing that i notice is these railings around it about six foot tall and um, they go all the way around the monument in in a square shape and they're these black railings with spikes on the top so why are they here They're pretty extraordinary, aren't they? They're actually part of the kind of history of the site and the protection of the site. And one of the things that we wanted to feature today was that this is one of our oldest protected monuments in England. It was protected 150 years ago. And these railings are almost that old. They're from 1885. And the ancient monument inspector at the time, who was General Pitt Rivers, quite a famous archeologist, he recognized the importance of the site but he also recognized that the site might be at peril. And, and the reason he recognized that was because a number of people going back to 16th, 17th century recorded elements of the site that have been disappearing over time and also things like graffiti. If we go around, um, you can look in and we have some lovely graffiti from the 19th century just before these railings were put up essentially. So he obviously recognized that this is a monument that needs to be protected. And why was this monument singled out for protection, Al? When you look at the list of sites that goes on to that first schedule, I mean, the schedule is a list, there are quite a lot of prehistoric sites that the Victorians would have related to early Britons. In other words, on that list, they're looking to tell the story of the origins of Britain's culture. So actually, the aim of that first collection of sites that get protected by the state is to tell the story of Britain, which is really chimes very closely with English Heritage's mission today. You know, that's to tell the story of Britain. So we're very fortunate that that first round of protection actually took in sites like this. And you don't get storytelling, you don't get explaining without protecting and 
preserving first. Exactly, yeah. So the, he, he was looking to protect monuments which we could sort of hang pegs, if you like, that we could hang that story of Britain's development onto. So despite the stark vision that you get when you emerge from this sort of tunnel of trees and fallen leaves and mud, is you actually get a statement of we are protecting this history. Well, I mean, we've just seen with what happened at Sycamore Gap. And that's on Hadrian's Wall, isn't it? It is, that's right. And there's always some idiot who wants to carry out some mindless vandalism. And, and these these railings are still doing a job, you know, if, if someone wants to come along now. So Pitt Rivers was ahead of his time. He's, he's done a job that's lasted 150 years so far and hopefully will continue to do the same job well into the future. Absolutely. And I'm intrigued about the name. Jennifer, can you tell us about the name, Kitts Coty? Well, in fact, on the English Heritage panel here, on the railing, it's down as Kitts Coty House. So I guess there's two names. Well, I, I think that name um, sort of derives, it, we also have on the sign here, um, a lovely drawing from Stukeley, who was one of the earliest sort of antiquarians in, in the early 18th century to record a lot of these sites, and he calls it a house. And so I think it was probably maybe local folklore arose because we have these sort of three sort of massive megaliths, big stones, and they're kind of house-shaped. So maybe some people thought it used to be a little cottage from the past because it would have had a longer mound that's disappeared. But there's a lot of folklore and legends also connected to the site, and that might have been where the name came from. And, and one of the ones we've identified is connected to the burial place of an Anglo-Saxon, so an early medieval warrior, legendary warrior called Catagen. There was a battle battle against the Anglo-Saxons in Aylesford, so just down the road in AD 455. So that's one sort of theory, but there's lots of other ones. So the kit side of things, does that relate to the Catagen? Is, is that a sort of adaptation of Catagen kit? It's just a theory. It might have a kind of historical connection, but we, we just don't know. It's just a theory. There's a monument just in the next river valley to the east called Julibury's Grave. And Julibury was supposedly one of the generals who accompanied Julius Caesar into this country. So you can see they're sort of grasping. For, they've got a basic idea that this is a tomb of some sort, but they're kind of grasping with the huge duration of prehistory and they're trying to relate it to what they know from existing texts or from local stories and, and mythology. Yeah, they're putting it in their own sort of frame of reference. And one thing is that a lot of these might maybe have a magical association, almost like a magical, you know, mythical being. We visited together Wayland Smithy, which has that mythical connection. So it might even be a similar thing here. Yeah, and in fact, there's, there's, a, there's a burial monument in the Peak District, which English Heritage also looks after, called Hobhurst's House. And Hob, in that context, Hob is a hobgoblin. So it might well be a, a supernatural being, not just a local shepherd who we're referring to here. <laughs> We've just changed position, Al and Jennifer, and we are now at the monument as though we had just come from the path. And we're looking directly at it, with the railings, of course, in front, framing the monument. Now... There's this other story waiting to be told, these giant stones behind the black railing. Can you describe, Jennifer, how they're arranged? It's kind of like a like a goal mouth, I suppose. Yeah, as you're, as you're saying, it's sort of H-shaped, but with a massive stone sort of teetering on top of these um, two 
uprights. Um, so it's it's kind of a version of what we would call classic sort of dolmen shaped, but it's pretty extraordinary. And I have to say, this is my first time visiting, and I was really struck by the size of these stones. They're massively big. Probably about seven feet tall, I think, at, the two uprights. At least, I would say, seven feet tall. And the size, you know, they're clearly sort of picked for their large size. And they, they look like they're maybe a little bit shaped into rectangular or square sort of forms. So it really would have been such a marvel for them to put these stones upright. And I can see why, you know, 150 years ago, they thought, wow, this is impressive. We need to protect it. Yes, and even placing the one on top, that is a much bigger and wider stone than the two vertical ones and almost seems to be teetering to one side. So it's almost as if you're looking down onto it and it's drawing your eye towards the landscape and the hills in the distance because from where we're standing right now, the landscape does sort of slide away very gradually towards the distance, towards the horizon. And of course, in the centre, we've also got a stone between the two and almost looks like the shape of of Scotland on a map to me anyway look, just looking at it so we've got four stones in total effectively and a few others dotted around the monument as well indeed yes and so we have four sort of in total that are upright but we have also lots of sort of smaller bits that might have been part of the monument it might have fallen off over time so it obviously is only an, an incomplete monument now. So what we see here wasn't how it would have originally looked. We'll get on to how it would have originally looked a, a, a bit further on, but how would these stones have got here? Where did these stones come from, Al? Well, you can probably tell just by looking around, we're in a chalk landscape here. And the stones that the monument are made of are sarsen stones, which are the same stones that Stonehenge is made of. So you might be tempted to think that these stones had come a long way and that people had dragged them for, you know, miles and miles. But in fact, these things crop up naturally, as they do on Salisbury Plain. They crop up naturally here and there throughout the landscape, throughout this chalk landscape. So they probably don't come as far as you might be tempted to think they come. I mean, that said, the size of these things is, is so enormous that even moving these two centimetres is, is an enormous effort. But because these things do crop up naturally through the landscape, there have been quite a lot of false identifications over the years. So people finding clusters of stones that farmers have cleared off the fields, for example, and thinking they've found a previously unrecognised burial monument, when actually it's nothing of the sort. But, I mean, clearly this, and also the countless stones, Little Kitscoty, is, is another nearby burial monument which is made of the same stones. Burial monument is a key phrase, so this is the function of the stones. It, it is to be a place for the dead. Yes, and, and really what we think we're seeing here is the remains of a, of a burial chamber that would have been part of a much larger mound that has pretty much disappeared. You can just about see the outline if you looked at an aerial photo, or, or you can kind of see the edge if you're good at spotting things in the field. So this would have been the remains of, of some place that people were burying the dead and um, probably would have been fully enclosed by a surrounding sort of cairn or mound that we just don't see today. So it kind of is a little bit misleading because it looks like a freestanding monument, but it, it wouldn't have originally looked quite like that. It would have been more 
like some of the other long barrows and cairns that we get across England um, at the start of the Neolithic. So the way that we're standing at it, looking at it now, as our eyes sort of go towards the distance, following the edge of these railings in a way, and maybe a bit further out from those, that would be a perimeter of a mound. It was a long, a long mound. So we're actually at the far eastern end of it, and it would have gone out into the field, sort of out towards the edge as we're looking towards the valley below. So you can actually just see it there. You can just particularly about with see the it. with the low sun, you can just see it picked out by the sun quite um, nicely. And what sort of distance would the edge be? It's about it's about eighty meters to the far end of it. So it's you know it's pretty much to the edge of the of the slope there. A, so long way. a good sprint then. Okay. An enormous piece of work, yeah. Yes. And what will be inside this mount, do we know? Unfortunately, this site has been kind of messed around with going back to probably at least the 16th century. So we're not really able to recover remains from it, we don't think. Um, there has been some, some work done here. In terms of age and excavations, Al, can you tell us a bit more about that history? Broadly speaking, we know that this belongs to the early Neolithic, but where these sites have been excavated elsewhere, it's very clear that the Long Barrow is the end product, not the first monument that these things evolve. So very often you get smaller mounds as the first phase, which are gradually modified through time, and the eventual thing is, a, is, a, is this enormous long barrow. This has been excavated uh, once in the late 18th century, again in 1959, and that excavation suggested that this probably did have more than one phase of building here. So actually the, one of the possibilities is that this started off as a sort of D-shaped monument surrounded by smaller sarsen stones. So again, we tend to think of these chalk barrows, these luminous white chalk barrows as being very highly visible monuments in the landscape. But if they've got these rather dull greyish sarsens around them, they perhaps weren't as, as visually spectacular as we, we tend to assume. But the most recent excavation was only just over 10 years ago now by Paul Garwood from Birmingham University. And I was talking to him about this last week, actually, to see if he had any new dating evidence. And it's going to come down to one fish bone and one grain of cereal, which was found under the remnant of the mound here. So from that, we ought to be able to get a radiocarbon date, assuming it is it hasn't kind of crept in down a mole hill or something, or a mole hole. We stand a chance of getting an accurate date because there's a similar, similar monument on the other side of the valley. We could just about see it from here, actually, which is called Cauldrum. And that was excavated quite thoroughly. They got lots of human remains out of it, and they've dated those very precisely now. And we know that those were built within the first few decades of the 40th century BC. In other words, that's almost exactly 6,000 years ago. So that's the very earliest monument in the British Isles. And it's possible that Kitscote is as early, who knows, even earlier. But in terms of carbon dating, uh, that date in the future will be an exciting date. It'll be in incredibly exciting. And I think it's pretty extraordinary because a lot of these monuments that develop, obviously in, in England we have quite a few different types of burial mounds and cairns and all sorts of long barrows. 
but these really are the earliest and they're so closely connected to this new group of people these these kind of immigrants these farmers coming over from France so it's really extraordinary in that sense that there's these groups of monuments in this this valley that we can turn to and, and hopefully more research can be done to discover their origins before you get your hopes up too high though <laughs> Charles it has to be said that you need a whole range of different samples to get the kind of accuracy that takes us down to a sort of generational level like we have at Coldrum. So one cereal grain and one fish bone probably aren't going to get us that level of accuracy, but it at least places us in the right century, which is better than nothing. <laughs> and whether it's the early Neolithic at all, as I said, it might have fallen down a, a mouse hole or something, in which case, you know, who, who knows what date it will be. Al, for people who aren't too familiar with the terms Neolithic, whereabouts is that on the timeline of history? So Neolithic are the first farmers who come to this country, really. We're looking at the end of the lifestyle of hunter-gathering, which has gone on for millennia. And then suddenly, around 6,000 years ago, we get an influx of people from the Low Countries and northeast France, at least in Kent, on the west side of Britain, they're coming up the west coast of France and they're coming across the channel there. So these are people coming across in small boats with sacks of grain that they can plant. They're bringing livestock with them too. They're bringing sheep and cattle for the first time. They're bringing the know-how to make pottery and they're bringing new types of stone tool as well. So we're still talking about the Stone Age, but it's the end of the Stone Age. So we're not, you know, these are quite sophisticated people who are farming and we would recognize a lot of what they're doing even though they're building things like this that are very unfamiliar to us and of course after life comes death and then comes these burial chambers so do we know who was buried here presumably it would be some of these early communities i'm I'm guessing jennifer indeed and i think one point that is important is these new groups of people they have this new lifestyle that is more sedentary so there for the first time maybe clearing elements of the land you know creating small fields and have you know grazing their animals and they are building houses and in this area we are actually in a cluster of some of these sites where we have some of these really early neolithic houses which were rectangular and quite some of them were quite big quite sizable they're sort of like long houses and these are some of our earliest houses in britain so those are the people that are probably building this tomb. And and some archaeologists theorize that the kind of inspiration for the shape of the tomb or the style of the tomb might go back to the way the houses look because they're kind of a similar sort of squared off structure. Um, We don't know for sure. And unfortunately, we don't have actual burial remains from this mound because it's been sort of messed with over over many hundreds of years. But they have done some work on some other burial sites in the area. And it seems like the people, and this is all really new research, that they were living locally. We have um, a type of analysis called isotope analysis, which looks at the um, molecules in your bones and your teeth based on the food and water you drink, and so where you're kind of raised. And it shows a very local signature that people are living within a couple kilometers of, of these burial monuments. They might have still had French origins because the chemical signatures are not that different from France, but um, they're probably living locally and setting themselves up and then building these monuments that would really mark their place in, in these landscapes over time. 
One theory is that the people who are buried in the very earliest stages of the use of these monuments are actually the founders, the people who've come across from the continent and established communities. And maybe the people who get buried subsequently, because they, they go back into these tombs and, and bury people at later dates, maybe they are in the same way sort of significant to the community. They are people who've done something important in the community or perhaps succeeded in warfare or something like that. Some, and for some reason, a selection of the community is allowed into these monuments once they're dead. Let's, should we take a walk just around the edge of the uh, monument, go round the railings and stand on the opposite side from where we're standing mm. now, and we'll just get a view of this landscape, because we've got the stones sort of obstructing the view somewhat, so we'll just cross onto the other side. Good idea. just taking it all in because that's some view you could sort of understand why they chose this position can you well apart from the modern things that we look at in the in the background with a factory and uh, some sort of uh, modern settlement but uh, to me I'm seeing the land sort of slightly disappear below our feet and then obviously you have the hills in the background which I think are the are they the North Downs? So they are the North Downs, yeah. But what we're looking at is we're looking across the valley of the River Medway. So if we were to look downstream to the right there, we could almost see the sea. It's just out of sight behind that shoulder of the hills there. If we were to look upstream, then we're starting to look towards the Weald of Kent, so the clays and the, and the sandstones of the Weald. But this is a very important point. This is a valley that the River Medway has carved through the North Downs here is called the Medway Gap and the River Medway is now a sort of meandering broad river. It wouldn't have been like that in the Neolithic because the valley has silted up enormously both through agricultural activity on the valley sides and also through rising sea levels. But what we do know is that it would still have been a navigable river in the Neolithic. So you can imagine people coming across from Europe and making their way up this tidal river. So with the help of the tide there, they're able to penetrate a long way into Kent. In fact, the great Kent historian Gordon Ward described the, the Medway as the great highway into Kent. And it has been all through history. The point we're standing at really is at this pinch point in the landscape where there's a gap carved through the North Downs, which are quite a formidable barrier to movement. And people have, I think, always made their, their way to this point in the landscape as a way of getting through the Downs. But where I would disagree with you is we look, we look at this view now and we think, wow, fantastic vista. But of course, in the early Neolithic, totally different landscape, very heavily wooded or forested even. So maybe the view that we appreciate now <laughs> is actually more akin to the view in the opposite direction where we're looking at the downs, the other side of the downs, and they're still heavily wooded now, those steep slopes. So I think I, my impression is that these monuments would have been built in pretty small clearings and you wouldn't necessarily have been able to see beyond the edge of the clearing. I mean, if you look in that direction, you can see the trees on the horizon. Those are not as big as trees were in the Neolithic, and yet they're screening out most of the view that you're appreciating. So if those trees were any closer, we wouldn't see any of that. 
I've taken an artist's interpretation to uh, <laughs> appreciating the site, I suppose, in the 21st century. And I've sort of seen it in a way that is describing a place where you sort of disappear into the afterlife, into the distance, and you've got the Well, love. you're not the only one. I mean, ever since the, the, the 18th century, people have been standing at these monuments and admiring the view out kind of thing and and this sense of monuments being sited to gain a view and it, it's still commonplace amongst archaeologists to talk in those terms but actually when you start Time's to think about the, what, what forest was like you know yeah. you didn't necessarily get these big views so i'm making a monumental error basically jennifer <laughs> jennifer well i mean i think i think it's understandable because the view up here actually is quite stunning and on a bright day like today especially but I think when we think about these, especially these early kind of burial monuments, these early tombs, they're marking places of, of human memory in the landscape. Essentially, they're places of settlement. So um, Al pointed out to me as, you know, there's a spring just down the hillside and we know there's houses dotted around and houses are harder to, to spot than these monuments because they're not made out of stone like this. You know, they're not upstanding stone. They're, they were wooden, so we only get the archaeological remains of post holes. So you really have to go and look for them. So there's probably a lot more houses around than have been detected. And they're probably following the springs, following the rivers. And so they're just putting their monuments, the burial monuments, just up a little bit from where they were probably living. And they might be going back and marking places that have this kind of ancestral connection. And and it is pretty extraordinary because these are probably some of our earliest monuments. These are the monuments of these kind of farming immigrants, essentially. So it's pretty my, extraordinary. My suspicion is when you look at the locations of a lot of these monuments, they are in quite exposed positions in the landscape. So, for example, here where we're on this spur sticking out into the valley and the valley itself would have acted as a pinch point. And people around this part of the world were very familiar with the damage done in the 1987 hurricane. And a lot of that damage happened in places exactly like this. So my suspicion is that actually these monuments are not built for a view, but because there's an existing clearing there to which these incoming farmers can take their livestock and get a bit of grazing land in what is otherwise fairly sparse grazing in the forested landscape. So they're coming here and, as Jennifer says, through time, through bringing their livestock back here year after year, they're developing ties with these places, between these places and their, their houses, which are presumably not that far away. I mean, the spring that you're talking about, Wellhead, is very close to this. Yeah. And when you look at all the, the of, we haven't said yet, but there are at least six, no, there are, in fact, there are seven <laughs> uh, burial monuments within quite a close range of where we are now. And... I think it's absolutely clear that they're all clustered round springs coming out of the chalk. So you can understand why these would be good places to live. You know, you've got transport in the form of the river, but you've also got fresh water close to your house. And you've got relatively nice light chalky soil that you can cultivate. So I think we should, what we should see the landscape in terms of is a series of sort of patches, some of which are grazed and have associations with coming up here in the summer perhaps some of which are actually cultivated for arable crops i'd like to pick your brains both of you about this idea of the river medway its position in the landscape how you might have been able to well i guess you wouldn't have been able to see it from this vantage point because of this would have been so forested but what is the significance if at all of a nearby watercourse for 
a burial monument, a burial chamber along Barrow? Well, I think actually it becomes clearer. I think the relationship between the Long Barrows and the river is not direct. You know, I think that the Long Barrows, as Jennifer said, relate to where people were living somewhere down slope and possibly little, you know, a number of little effectively farmstead communities scattered around in clearings in the forest. Where you do see a strong relationship between the, the river and a monument is further down the valley at Burham, which is just the next village over the hill there, where you've got what's called a causewayed enclosure or a causewayed camp. And these are the first monuments that actually enclose a space in Europe, in fact. And they are in some way related to cattle, to dairying, but they also have a, a ceremonial function and in fact people think of them as a sort of almost like a fairground everything that people want to do goes on in these places and the one that we have down there at Burham is enormous so that in, in itself implies quite a large population in this area who were prepared to come together to build that thing and it very clearly overlooks the river it's intended to be seen from the river I think so you can imagine people making their way up on the incoming tide on their small boats and seeing this thing presumably sitting in a clearing of its own but really quite an impressive monument directly above the river so it really would have dominated almost like a kind of uh, colossus the arrival point and similar for Kitscote as well I think even within its secluded forested area it would be a place that you would come across and notice and pause to look at as Jennifer said people have built a a relationship with these places through time so they're not kind of stumbling across them it's not that they don't know they're there but it might well be that they don't can't actually see the monument itself until they're within the clearing where it sits Mm. but you've got to remember that the early farmers are not coming into a total wilderness a trackless wilderness people have been living here for thousands of years They've established footpaths, they've established hunting grounds and so on. So it's a landscape where people can come and introduce themselves, but they're not by no means entering a sort of blank canvas. So you can imagine how these places would have had existing associations. What we find in many cases when these Neolithic monuments are excavated is that there are masses and masses of late Mesolithic flints scattered on the surface as well in other words the things that the hunter-gatherers used to use for making their hunting gear and and so on fishing and all the equipment they used they use a very different sort of stone technology but these are clearly places with a a long history before you start getting monuments in them let's take a bit of a, a walk into the sun i think maybe this way Strangely, it was quite cold on that side, but we've walked down the hill very slightly just to get the sun in our faces, really, and get that vitamin D, which is so important during winter. Now, this is obviously still quite an isolated spot, but you've already mentioned that there are groups of monuments within the locality. So it's not really as isolated as it seems. No, I mean, the nearest monument that we know of is uh, Little Kitscote, also known as the Countless Stones, and I tried counting them this morning, and it took me about 17 attempts, so yeah, they really are countless stones. I mean, that's only, it's half a kilometre, it's, it's, it's not a p- particularly pleasant walk to get there, but it's within, 
if you think about the Neolithic landscape when you haven't got the traffic noise in the background, if people were making noise down there, you'd certainly hear them even if the trees stopped you seeing them. Sure. So that's, that's the closest monument. Mm. Little Kitscote is a monument probably not completely dissimilar from this one, although there are lots more stones there and, and some of them are actually bigger than these ones at Kitscote itself. But they have been knocked over, so you don't get this incredibly impressive piece of architecture. But we also know that there are uh, there's another another megalith that used to exist called Smythe's megalith, just round the shoulder of the hill there. That was probably another of these. And Smythe's megalith is just upslope from two Neolithic longhouses, which are slightly later than, than the date I told you before, about 6,000 years ago. They're probably mm, 5,700, something like that. And these longhouses were discovered effectively completely by chance when HS1, the route to the Channel Tunnel, was built, the railway link. So there's a big cutting going into the side of the North Downs and the excavations in advance of that uh, development stumbled across these two very well-preserved, or one very well-preserved and one less well-preserved longhouse, which are, from the dates, they were potentially in use for several hundred years and they might well be housing some of the people who did the farming and the building of these monuments. Wow. And Little Kitscote, you said obviously it's very hard to count the fallen stones. That's part of this general area. Do we know when those stones would have been knocked down? Was it a farmer who did it? Or? They were, uh, de- it was demolished in 1690, but you're right that farmers probably played a part in it as well because some of the stones there are quite small there are some huge ones but there are also some relatively small ones and what tends to happen with farmers is when they're trying to clear the ground to allow them to plough they will move small stones that they can easily roll aside they will move them onto existing heaps of stone so not all those stones are necessarily to do with the early neolithic burial monument but we do have a record of, of there being seven standing stones with a big one on top. So well, here we've got this H-shaped arrangement of three standing stones with a big one on top. Seven implies that you've got something a bit more complicated, but still with a big sort of roof over the top. How do they relate then, those two sites? Obviously in terms of name, we've got Kitscote and Little Kitscote. Mm. So obviously they relate in terms of the names that, the modern names that they've been given, but do they relate in any, any other way? We don't know is the honest answer. No excavation has ever been carried out at Little Kits Coty. We would guess, I think, that it probably was a similar monument to this one, but built by a different community, maybe you know, a different extended family group or a different clan or, or whatever. We assume that they're broadly the same period as well, and that may well be round about 6,000 years old as well, but without excavation we're just not in a position to say, honestly. Francis Pryor, in his book on prehistoric, prehistoric Britain, guesses, and it's by his own admission, it's a guess that there are about a hundred thousand people living in Britain at that time. And if you think of communities as of about, say, twenty-five people, that would mean twenty-five people were living in an area the size of modern-day Oxford. So that gives you an idea how sparsely settled the landscape was. Earlier on in the podcast, both of you, we were talking about the railings and, of course, the fact that it's been 150 years since they were put up to protect the monument. There's some other anniversaries 
going on this year, aren't there? Related to Kits Cozy, is that yeah, right? Yeah, it was, it was only when we were preparing for this podcast that I suddenly realised that it was 60 years since the publication of Stig of the Dump. Popular children's book in the UK. Indeed. I mean, many children have had to read it because it was on the national curriculum both at primary school and secondary school. So, yeah, a really well-known book and it's been televised as well. And it Uh, relates to this site? It does indeed, yeah. So the plot of the book is about uh, a young boy called Barney who goes and plays in the chalk pits near his home when he's bored. As you can see, there's still chalk pits all, all around us in every direction here. And Barney stumbles across someone he thinks of as a caveman, who he calls Stig, because when he says his name it sounds a bit like Stig. And it gradually emerges that Stig is indeed an early Neolithic person, not a caveman, but an early Neolithic farmer. And the climax of the book is when they, when Barney and his sister Lou, who hasn't believed him for most of the uh, most of the book, get caught up in this time shift on on Midsummer Day, on the longest day of the year. And as the dawn of Midsummer Day approaches, they find themselves exactly where we're standing, and they're seeing the final chapter in the construction of Kitscoty there, and they witness the placing of that capstone, the lowering of that capstone onto those four uprights, or three three uprights rather. So it's an incredibly dramatic climax. And then with that, the moment that occurs, they're transported back out of the early Neolithic and back to the well, the present day as was then. I mean, this is back in 1963 it was published. Yeah. Uh, so 60 years ago, exactly. So a bit like what we do on the podcast, where we sort of... <laughs> jump into different time zones via the present and then sort of experience the past and then go back again. I'm telling you, Charles, it it was incredibly important to me because I read that when I was about 10. So it's the 45th anniversary of me reading it. Right. And uh, at one point later on in the book, it mentions Seven Oaks, the town where I grew up. And at that point, I suddenly thought, oh my goodness, this, this isn't fiction at all. This is a real place. And I demanded my parents brought me here and, and I, I, you know, I was amazed that something that I thought was total fiction was actually reality. And I spent, honestly, I spent my, most of my teenage years playing in the chalk pits, hoping to bump into Stig. And it, it was a, a major part in me becoming an archaeologist, that, that sense that you could get a vision of what life was like in the past. That's an amazing story and that's fascinating. So just to sort of channel this time-travelling aspect. Um, let's go back to your childhood then, Alistair, and relive one of the passages from Stig of the Dump. This is the climax of the book, really. And now the stone was standing on its edge, near the end of the mound, ready to be lowered onto the top of the standing stones. The king was looking anxiously at the sky, which now showed a bright glow over the shoulder of the downs to the east. Sunrise couldn't be far off. The workers on the brake rope took the strain as the stone began to fall forward. So just talking about um, different paths to becoming historians, I think, is uh, quite a nice way to sort of bring in the subject of the Pilgrim's Way, which I believe is very nearby. Any significance in that to this particular site? That's a good question. Uh, people have suggested in the past that this, this route, which was the main pilgrim route to Canterbury, was perhaps of far earlier origin because it kind of skirts close to these 
Neolithic monuments. I think the key connection between them is actually that we're very close here to the closest point at which you can get across the River Medway at low tide. So I think a lot of this cluster of Neolithic monuments has to do with this being a crossing point of the river. And that's the reason the Pilgrim's Way runs past here as well. That whole idea of prehistoric people making their way along the ridges, along ridgeways, it kind of harks back to a time before we had aerial photography really, when the only surviving monuments were up high on the hilltops and people thought that the river valleys were just kind of swamp and totally uninhabitable. Mm. And actually, now that we've got aerial photography as, a, as an archaeological tool, we can see that the river valleys are actually where most of the activity is going on. And so it seems quite unlikely to me that people were using this as a route in the Neolithic, even though they were following that route hundreds of years ago and still do today, in fact, as a pilgrimage route to Canterbury. I'm sure some will when the weather is better. Um, All year round it gets used as a route. You really? You see people in the depths of winter making their way along the Pilgrim's Way. I wonder, in the medieval period when they started some of those pilgrimage routes, I wonder how, if these monuments still kind of marked places in the landscape as sort of just like we have, we know people like Stukli are coming in the 17th, 18th or 18th century. Perhaps it was part of the kind of just an obvious thing in the landscape you were kind of shooting towards if you're coming down. A wayfinder. Uh, yeah, exactly. Almost like exactly. coming towards a junction or yeah, something distinctive, a roundabout. Distinctive that people were, were kind of marking their path and maybe some of those stories around the name of, of the monument might have come from around that time. Mm. Who knows? Yes. There are examples of, particularly in France, I can think of examples of, of stones that have had Christian iconography carved onto them yeah. to make them acceptable, if you like. And Rudston, which is a, near where I live in North Yorkshire, is the rude stone. In other words, it's the cross stone. It's, been, it's the tallest standing stone in Britain probably of later Neolithic date, but that is turned into a Christian monument. So you can imagine there might have been paintings on this even in, in the Middle Ages to make it acceptable to Christian passers-by, Christian That's pilgrims. Right. Yes. And you could imagine perhaps people kneeling at the front there to Indeed. maybe in prayer. Yes. It could have been, a, you know, it could have had some shrine. And I, I noticed there's someone's tied a ribbon onto the the fence around the stones and so people maybe are still coming in marking it as a important place in the landscape today. Just as a final closing thought then, what do burial chambers like Kitscoty tell us about the Neolithic people's beliefs about death? How do we interpret this huge existential question? What strikes me is that we know that people are going back into these tombs and manipulating the bones that were in there. So they were organising the skulls, organising the long bones. They were also taking them out again for prolonged periods and depositing them in other places. So there's a sense, I think, that the dead are not buried and gone as they are today, but that they are very present in people's lives still. That The ancestors are, they might have moved on to a different world, but they're also still with you. Some people think of that as really morbid, you know, that you have your kind of great-grandmother's skull sitting in the corner of your house. But I can see as well how it's also really healthy and perhaps something we could learn from today, that these people are not forgotten, they're not gone, they're still with you. So people you treasured in life are still 
part of your lives even though they're, they're dead. So I think that's a really important thing. I think that's um, something that we already have today, don't we, with people keeping cremated remains on mantelpieces, for example. Indeed, yes, that, that's true. So I guess we're not that different from the Neolithic, Neolithic peoples of our ancient past. Well, I, I, I would think we are, actually, because I think, by and large, we're not very good at dealing with death. We like to sort of sanitise it and keep it apart from us and put people in the ground. I mean, you, you can, can you imagine going in digging up uh, your great-grandmother and, and bringing her back into the house. But that's what these people were doing. Mm. So I think it's very different. We run the risk, I think, because they're farmers, of treating them like the archers and thinking, and thinking we understand exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it. And they are not like the archers. They are very, very different from us today. And for anyone listening abroad, the archers is a BBC Radio 4 drama I'm about sure the farmers. Arches is international isn't it? Uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> sure that there are subscribers abroad and your final thoughts Jennifer about this question of life and death and how how they related in the Neolithic. I think it's a it's a really interesting thing to think about and I think you know as Al was saying these sites they weren't kind of a dead grave these are places people are coming back to over many many years and um, you know they acted almost more like a shrine, and and they also had a lot longer sort of what we would call rites of passage. So the process of the way they handled the bodies, and they became essentially dead members of this community. They were still part of the community, and so these were incredibly important places. But also because this is connected to this group of people coming over, kind of establishing themselves on the land here, establishing a connection to place. That's why I think they're so poignant. And I think even, you know, going back to General Pitt Rivers, who fought to protect some of these early sites, that is, is the reason for it, is that, you know, they kind of connect to an origin, an origin story that we still find incredibly moving today and around, you know, wh- what is our place in the world and how do we connect to, you know, our ancient ancestors and what's our connection to the landscape and the, and the land? And, you know, these are all questions we're all asking ourselves today almost like a great stone tool for connecting life and death, past and present. Yes, it's a physical thing on which you can hang a story. There are masses and masses of Neolithic flints out there, worked flints, tools, axes, that we've not found yet, that we're never going to find. And we'll never see them, potentially. But with something like this, it's still there. It's... it's, available for people to visit and just to think themselves back into the world of Stig of the Dump. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week we'll discuss the life and music of English composer George Jeffries. This glorious ascension has taken place, but we are all the poorer for that. We're the ones left behind. If you're willing to read into them, there are obvious parallels with the lost king of the royalists. And this comes time and again through Geoffrey's music. Thanks for listening. See you next time.